Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Should we love all children or just our own? Our soon-to-be-released study of child fatalities documents numerous physical assaults on children that caseworkers, law enforcement, investigators, and the courts knew about but ignored. Perhaps we have become desensitized to violence against children or forgotten that it is illegal or feel just powerless to stop it. As with broader cultural responses to brutality, mass shootings, for example, The question is, how much violence will we tolerate? Should we simply concede that we can't do anything about assaults against children other than our own? Or even accept the idea that children are the property of their parents and we have no business interfering with their rights, no matter what crimes they commit? We have no new directions to recommend other than that we should persevere in loving all children and defending them from harm including ones who are not our own. For some time now, we have been saying that we will release a report on child fatalities in Minnesota from 2015 to 2022, and we are nearly there. I expect that the report will become public in the next two weeks. Today's blog was prompted by some of the experiences that I and our Safe Passage staff attorney had in researching and writing the report. As the blog hints at, our study is revealing a catastrophic breakdown in the norms of society, which is allowing children to be egregiously harmed, sometimes over long periods of time, and sometimes even tortured and killed. At the suggestion of one of our contributors, we decided to use a quote at the beginning of the report from Dante's Inferno, which sums up the situation. It goes, in the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself in the dark woods where the straight way was lost. Now, to make sure in this report that we were on solid ground in how we represented our findings, we asked subject matter experts in a number of fields related to child welfare to review and comment on four to six reports each that included issues relevant to their particular sector. The groups included medical personnel with expertise in child abuse and neglect, court officers, including a former judge and three county attorneys, one person from law enforcement and one from guardian ad litems, several persons with expertise in domestic violence, and also experts in the child welfare world, including two retired child protection unit supervisors and a national policy expert. And what we found, among other things, was a pattern, a pattern of ignoring assaults against children, as referred to in the blog, in a way that would be unthinkable if the same acts were committed against adults. 
Of course, I recommend that you read the report when it comes out, but here are a few examples organized by some of the patterns that we observed. In the medical area, we found a number of cases where primary care providers either ignored or didn't recognize known indications of child maltreatment. These included broken bones in infants, which can't be the result of a fall because infants are not mobile. Regarding the response of county child protection agencies, we found a pattern of ignoring chronic neglect, which develops over time into what is called by some experts chronic multi-type maltreatment. This is a process where neglect spirals, spirals downward to begin including sexual and physical abuse, starvation, and then even sadistic actions for their own sake. In one case, the mother and two other adults held down the oldest sibling in this family in 2006 and beat her, <clears throat> resulting in a conviction for malicious punishment of a child. And then over the ensuing 12 years, siblings who were born later were sexually assaulted by four different people, resulting in three convictions. Allegations were repeatedly made that the mother would, for example, hold down the hands of the children and hit them with a hammer, pour boiling water on them, or perform other similar acts of violence. Ultimately, one of the younger siblings was put in a garage overnight in zero and below temperatures and froze to death. In all of these instances, the surviving siblings were returned home. It wasn't until prosecutors recognized that the child's death was a homicide rather than an accident, which was almost a year and a half later, that the siblings were finally removed for good. This was not an unusual example of chronic multi-type maltreatment other than it was allowed to go on somewhat longer than similar ones. In a number of cases, this ultimately deteriorated into torture. Our project included four coders who recorded such incidents using three recognized definitions of torture, one from Minnesota state law, one known as the Knox Standard from an off-cited research paper, and one from the National Center for Child Abuse Statistics and Policy. Our sample included 88 fatalities, and our coders found 15 cases with elements of torture, which may have been clearly documented as torture, but information necessary to make that judgment was missing in the court documents. We subsequently shared these cases with two national experts on child torture, which led to a consensus that at least... All 15 cases had elements of torture, and five children met the criteria for torture for all three of the above measures. One of our reviewers, D. Wilson, gave the following description of what counts as torture for children. D. is a former child welfare manager and researcher in the state of Washington and for Casey Family Programs, and he currently writes a blog called The Sounding Board, which you can find in The Imprint, which is an online child welfare newspaper. Here's the quote from D. Torture is characterized by systematically depriving children of both food and water, binding children and or forcing them to stay in confined spaces for hours or days at a time, the use of humiliation and sexual abuse to dehumanize a child and break the child's will, repeated extreme physical abuse leading to permanent disfiguration or physical dysfunction or death, complicity in the plan of torture by both parents and sometimes siblings, medical neglect due to prolonged denial of medical attention even when a child is in obvious pain. Torture differs from battered child syndrome, which typically involves assaulting a child impulsively to keep them from crying. In addition, children who are tortured are frequently older children rather than infants and toddlers. So that's torture. And we had at least five 
and as many as 15 cases out of the 88 that fit that pattern. Another distressing pattern was the lack of effective safety plans. Safety plans are commonly used in Minnesota, but they are not very often documented in any detail in court records. So the lack of an effective safety plan occurred many times, but in one example, it revolved around the impotence of no contact orders in a domestic violence case. In this particular situation, there were at least 10 domestic abuse no contact orders or DENCOs that led to multiple convictions for one of the fathers, yet the mother was allowed by the courts to withdraw at least two no contact orders because she said she wanted to work on the relationship with the father. Another father in and out of the same household began sexually perpetrating on a child when she was an infant and continued until the age of five, despite the fact that he was not supposed to be allowed in the household. In this and any number of other cases, there was an overlap between domestic violence and child maltreatment, which ultimately led to the death of one of the children. The court records in this case mentioned several safety plans during the life of the case, though uh, as mentioned before, we found very little in the court records other than a general acknowledgement that there was a safety plan, not much detail at all in any of the uh, court records we looked at. Another pattern we identified was reunifying children with violent parents who had not followed their case plans or showed signs of actually addressing the issues that got the children removed in the first place. The court documents typically included a long history of the parents not addressing their mental health or substance abuse or other problems. Then, at one point, without much explanation, the children were reunified and the case dismissed, which then led shortly afterwards to the child's death. A lack of coordination between different sectors was another pattern as well. There were several cases of mothers who had serious mental health issues being released from a psychiatric hold and returned to take care of small children. This raises obvious questions about discharge planning at an inpatient mental health facility, as well as why child protection would feel comfortable with having mothers who had just within a few days had a major psychotic break being considered safe for the children. In one recently reported story, a nine-year-old boy was shot nine times with a shotgun by his mother as he sat strapped into his car seat. She then stuffed him in the trunk. Law enforcement subsequently saw the mother driving on her rims with blood all over her and the car and smashed windows, but let her go. It was only after they discovered the boy's body in the trunk that they arrested her. One politically sensitive pattern is the misuse of kinship foster care. 10% of our cases were in foster care and all but one in kinship foster care. Our findings, along with those of a 2015 report by the Hennepin County Citizens Review Panel, indicated that children were placed with relatives without a lot of due diligence. In one of our situations, the relative who received the child then gave the child to a different relative who then moved in with the parents from whom the child had just been removed. In another, a black infant was placed with a white supremacist who was the husband of a cousin he wrote racial slurs on the infant in Magic Barker, screamed racial slurs at her, and ultimately beat her so badly that a court hearing had to be rescheduled to allow enough time for the autopsy. In all of these cases, our subject matter experts concurred that mistakes had been made and that procedures had not been followed. This has been a difficult report to research, and those of us involved uh, in it ultimately felt 
anger, revulsion, depression, some forms of secondary trauma, and we fear that readers of the report will experience some of the same reactions. I could go on indefinitely about other case studies that similarly reveal a sometimes total breakdown in the system from the point of view of what the children need. And it's hard, frankly, to feel optimistic about any plan to make the situation better, in part because of those factors that got us to this point in the first place. One of them is pressure from activists on both the right and the left to not break up families. On the left, this comes from the perception that child welfare has removed children from BIPOC families somewhat willy-nilly because the system doesn't understand any culture other than white culture. I doubt, however, that anyone reading these case studies would agree that for these particular children, Child Protection acted too soon. Pressure from the right comes from parents' rights groups, including homeschoolers, who perceive any government involvement with the family as an intrusion. At a more systems level, the public policy positions of institutions in closely related sectors to child welfare have not included child maltreatment in their political and program agendas. These include, for example, early childhood learning, in-home parenting skills training programs, child care, domestic violence, and others. While probably unintended, the net effect has been to squeeze out the interests and the rights of maltreated children as a public policy priority. Addressing these monumental problems feels daunting, somewhat like maybe rebuilding a country after a war. And we could probably write a whole book on next possible steps without covering the topic fully. The first step, however, has to be to hold ourselves and start holding institutions of society that are closely related to child welfare to account for responding to violence against children. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.com. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our e-brief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.